everybody. Good morning. It's another one of those texts where I approach it and I'm like, oh, I'm not, I am not worthy to preach this text. Fortunately, it's not me. We just let the Holy Spirit speak, right? Um, so at this point, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, your teacher um, will meet you at the back door. Got a lesson on Jonah. Just a setting in which children can learn scripture in, in a more age-appropriate place. And we get together here and worship together. So let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, what tremendous words at the end of this section that we will gain much more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. What a beautiful promise. Lord, would you bring that to home to roost in our hearts? Help us to hear and understand. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts and implant your word deep? Jesus, would you fill this with your grace, your mercy, your glory, and Father, be honored and glorified as your Son completes his mission on this world. Bless our time in your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So at chapter 18, we're still kind of going through just one famous parable after another. The, the rich ruler is another famous one. Uh, before we start, I just want to say this parable is in all three of the synoptic gospels, or not parable, this story is in all three of the synoptic gospels. Mark's account is almost identical to Luke's. Matthew's is a little different, has a little bit more detail and more context, but what I want to do is I want to hear what Luke has to say. Luke is telling this, and he's telling it in a, in a series of stories, so he, he must have a purpose for it. So um, if I slip this morning and say the rich young ruler, understand that young comes from Matthew, not from Luke. I, I just, as I was practice preaching this, I kept saying the rich young ruler or this young man. And I was like, no, he's, that's not what Luke focuses on. So uh, we're going to focus on what Luke has to say. In the flow of this, um, as I've said before, Luke's gospel is written to Theophilus that he may know these things for sure, that he would understand the things he's been taught. And so my premise is this is about being a better disciple. And so Luke includes this in this spot because he wants us to be better disciples. Um, last week, you remember we talked about uh, this, the parable that Jesus told about those who trust in themselves, that they're righteous. And then after that was that story about the children coming to Jesus and him saying, don't, don't turn them away, let them come. And I said at that point, that was kind of a bridge between last week and this week. And, and it is because that picture, again, is these children coming in innocence and expectation and looking forward to meeting Jesus. They want to crawl up in his lap. He's a nice guy. And, and they're, they're looking forward to that. So what Luke does here with this story of this rich ruler is he, he's carrying that message forward. And he's asking us, what might keep you from that? What would keep you from crawling into Jesus' lap? And, and so he brings this story in here and he tells it so that we would see this and, and be challenged by it. So that's where that goes. Um, so he, he starts out, the rich ruler comes to him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know this man's rich because later on Luke tells us he was extremely rich. So he had a lot of money. He says he was a ruler, probably not a ruler in a synagogue. When that happens, Luke tends to draw our attention to it. So he's probably a civic leader of some sort and he's extremely rich. This man is well off financially. But when you look at this, he's also rich morally. He's got a good, upright, moral life. When Jesus asks him, you know, tells him to do these commandments, he says, hey, I have done them all from my youth up. And there's no reason to doubt or question him about that, that he, he's lying there. I think he has actually done it. He has been a good, moral, upright person his entire life. 
He has never had sexual sin in his life. He has never disrespected his parents. He's never dis, uh, dishonored somebody in court unjustly. He's been a good, upright, moral man. And what we'll find out later is, is when people look at him, they, they hold him in high regard because of his position, because of his wealth. He must be a right kind of guy. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Is essentially what he's asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But what's he lacking? He's got it all. He's got it nailed down. Theologically, he's got his life in order. Financially, he is rich. He's got it all. Why is he coming to, to ask Jesus this question? It would be like some, if you were counseling somebody in church, another Christian comes to you and says, you know, I, I feel like I'm missing something. You might start by asking, well, you know, how's your prayer life? Are you praying? Yeah, I pray regularly. I do all that. Well, that's, that's a good thing. Well, how's your Bible study? Are you spending time with God's Word? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this year through the Bible kind of thing, and I'm reading every morning, and well, that's, that's pretty good. Are you, are you tithing at church? Yes, I, I regular, regularly tithe. I come and I worship every Sunday. Almost every Sunday I'm there. There's, I miss sometimes, but, you know, I'm mostly there. And you look at this person and go, well, what's the problem? You got it figured out. You're doing all the things. And they would say, you know, something just, I just feel like I'm missing something. Well, you've got it all nailed down. That's the picture that we got here is this rich young ruler comes and says, I'm doing the things. And something still ain't right. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This is almost identical to the question that a Pharisee asked Jesus back in chapter 10. The only, there's one word difference. And the Pharisee came and said, teacher, what must I do? The young ruler, or the, see, I did it. The, the rich ruler says, good teacher, what must I do? That's the only difference between the questions. And what's surprising is Jesus' answer is very similar between the two. Um, Jesus' answer starts with a very curious phrase, and I'm going to skip that for a moment, because I think that'll help lead into the next, next part a little bit. Uh, so Jesus looks at him and he says, well, let's, let's do that spiritual inventory. How are you doing? And he marches through some of the Ten Commandments. And the ruler says, well, I've done all of them. I've got that. So Jesus kind of begins to draw his attention to the externals, to his head. He, he, he thinks about how he approaches God, and he's got that down, but there's something in his heart that's missing. And so Jesus then says, we can back into that, that curious thing, he says, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? None is good but God alone. And, and that little phrase is kind of interpreted different ways. Um, some people take it to be Jesus affirming his divinity. The man calls him a good teacher, and Jesus says, well, I, indeed I am, but only God is good. So if that's the case, that's kind of an obtuse way to approach Jesus' divinity there, isn't it? Kind of a weird way to say it. Um, I think that comes in secondarily. What he's doing here is he's saying, you've got all these commandments. You've got all of these rules. You've got all of these things nailed down. Don't forget, only God is good. And if you hear my teaching, because he calls him a good teacher, if you think my teaching is good, and it is, understand my teaching is from God. This is what God would have to say to you. So he's reminding this ruler, don't put me in the same category as your your Pharisees and your, your rabbinical um, leadership. In those days, as is today in Judaism, you go with what the rabbi said. So they have a book with these ancient writings of the rabbis, and Rabbi so-and-so said this. 
And, and it's how did the rabbis interpret these things? And they kind of look to that. Similar thing here is they would look to a teacher and they say, well, this good teacher taught this. And that's, that's what we have to say. So what Jesus is telling him here is, I, I, indeed, I am a good teacher, but God alone is good. And so these words that I'm saying to you, they are actually God's. And, um, and that's what Jesus said in John chapter 7. Jesus answered them and he said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So what Jesus is doing, is, first of all, with this young man is reorienting him. This isn't about you. This isn't about what you've done. This is about God. So he immediately tries to steer him back to God and say, this is the issue. Now, what has God told you to do? And he goes through the Ten Commandments. I've done them all. All right. You need to understand, young man. Did it again. You need to understand, ruler. None is good but God. You need to get your righteousness from somewhere. And you've done these things, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying don't do these externals. The, the, the message here is not, well, he didn't have to keep all those rules because none is good but God. That, that would be a misunderstanding. You should do those things. And if somebody comes to you and says, I just am not sure about my salvation or I'm not sure I'm getting it all, you should go through that checklist with them. Because you start with those externals. You have to establish the externals. Are you doing the things that, you, that a Christian would do, that somebody who knows God would do? The problem is that's all in your head or in your hands, but it hasn't necessarily sunk into your heart yet. And that's where Jesus is drawing us. He's drawing us from our head to our heart. You have to have your heart in the right place. What your head and hands are doing are important. Have you ever heard that term, fake it until you make it? Sometimes your, your faith is really weak and you have to go, I, I'm struggling with this, but I'm going to continue to do these things because those things will begin to feed that faith. This summer, I'm going to do a, ser a sermon series on the tools of grace, what God gives us to increase our faith. And, and it'll be, I think, a four-week four week series on the things that God has given us to in improve our faith. And they're externals, and you should do those things. But the problem is they're not enough. If they're not actually communicating grace to you, if they're not reminding you again of what God has done for you, then they're insufficient. So that, that's the case here with this young man. I'm just going to say young man. I've, I've blown it, what, four times now? He's, he, I'm pronouncing him young. <laughs> just the way it's going to come out. I can't, can't change that. So where Jesus takes him then is he begins to move from his hands, from his head, and head to his heart and see where things are. So he's, when he says, I have done all these things for my youth, when Jesus heard this, when he heard that phrase, he said to him, one thing you still lack. So as soon as he's asked this question and he's given him the externals, he says, I've done all these. Jesus says, here's the problem then. So that answer triggers re Jesus' response. You've done all these things from your youth. Good, you've done the externals. That's, that's a good place to start. Jesus then replies, he says, okay, one thing you still lack. You're still not there. You're right. You're missing something. You are. Your heart hasn't engaged yet, and I'm about to tell you what to do. So he looks at him, and he says, sell everything that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. So do you see where Jesus goes is he, he says, you have done all these things from youth. That's wonderful. The one thing you haven't done is love your neighbor as yourself. You have accumulated your wealth to yourself. You've ha you have all of these riches, and they're what's standing between you and me. 
They're what's keeping that faith from going from your head down to your heart. That's what's blocking between the two. And so what I want you to do is take everything you own and sell it. Take all of the riches that you have now and distribute them among the poor, the people who really need it. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to give everything away. And when you do, Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. You will lose nothing. You'll simply transfer all of your wealth to a place where it can't go away. And then come and follow me. So is Jesus a good teacher? Yes, he is, because he, and he acknowledges it right now. He says, now you come and follow me, because I am a good teacher. And you do need to hear what I say, and you need to follow what I'm telling you. But there's something standing between us first, and you need to get rid of that. So sell everything and give it all away. But when he heard these things, when the, when the rich ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. There was so much stuff in his life that it stood between him and Christ. He couldn't let go of that stuff. How many people here this morning are extremely rich? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're saying on a global scale, we're extremely rich. Uh, in, in the context of our people around us, because, yeah, I, I, we don't have a problem with a bunch of rich people in, in our church. I think we're all moderate incomes. So do you have to then sell everything in order to follow Christ? Is that what's required? If somebody came to you and said, what must I do to be saved? Would you say sell everything and, and follow Christ? How many people did Jesus say that to? Exactly one. <laughs> he only said it to this young man. The message of that, though, he has said to every single one of us. The underlying implication of this, he has said to every single one of us. What is it that you're hanging on to that stands between you and I? What is it that will keep you from trusting me, from following me? What is keeping you from moving that faith from your head and your hands and letting it settle into your heart? Whatever that is, you need to let go of it. And when you let go of it, you need to turn that into service to others. You need to turn that into love for God and love for others. So Jesus doesn't say this to everybody. And some people have a problem with this. Is, this is a radical message. And, and boy, we, does everybody have to do that? And I've heard of people who've done it. You know, if they felt convicted to do that, maybe that was their issue. But for us, for most people, I think it's a much more subtle thing. And it can be harder to put your finger on. It can be harder for you to nail down, what is that thing that's keeping me from the next step in discipleship? How do I figure that out? And, and I think one of the diagnostics you could use on yourself, by the way, use this on yourself, not your your person sitting next to you going, yeah, you see, that's what I was telling you. This is for you to analyze yourself, not for you to analyze others. Is there something in your life that if you were to see another person get it, it would infuriate you? It would bother you that this other person got that. I'm at work, I work hard, I do a good job, and the other person got employee of the month, and that steams me. That really smokes me that the other person got it. That instead of going, oh, congratulations, man, that's great. You got a $25 gift card. You got your picture up on the wall. That's awesome. Good job. Instead, you would go, congratulations. And then not talk to him for the rest of the week. <laughs> or is there something that you could see your neighbor, the, the, maybe the pickup truck that you've been looking at for a long time, this pickup truck you've been envying, and all of a sudden it pulls up in your next door neighbor's driveway. And it just grates you. 
and just infuriated. That was, I've been saving for that. I wanted that. I couldn't get it, and he got it. And he's already got two trucks. What's he need another one for? What is it that you would see your neighbor, your friend, your spouse, your wife, your husband, something in their life that they were to receive that when they got it, you'd be angry, that when they received it, they'd be frustrated. Maybe the adulation of somebody that you really admire. I, I, I look up to this person, and I want them to like me, and they don't notice me, but they notice that person. And that really smokes me. I think I can do that sometimes um, when, and if you're following me on Facebook, I think I just did it. <laughs> um, sometimes I see these things that, that people will advertise, this is how to grow your church. Do this thing. And they get published, and they get invited to speak at things, and that kind of smokes me. And I think I'm sophisticated enough to, to qualify that to say, well, that may work for your church, but that's not going to work for every church in the world. I wonder if sometimes is that just me being mad because I haven't been published. I haven't written my book yet. And so I get a little miffed when I see this other person who I think I'm better than. So that's the kind of thing. Is that what is keeping you from that next step in discipleship? And it's, a, and it's an intensely personal question. Your spouse may be a good person to bounce that off of, but start with you and ask yourself, what, what thing is keeping me from that? What, what is the riches that Jesus would have me to give away? And you need to pray about that. You need to meditate on it. You need to reflect on it in the word. You need to, to analyze yourself honestly. You may ask your spouse, does this sound right? Does this sound like something I'm proud about or I'm angry about? Have I ever whined about this? That's the other thing is listen to your own whining. If you stop for a minute and listen to what you're whining about, that is a real big red flag saying, here, this needs to be resolved. I, I didn't get, how come nobody ever, and who, who doesn't whine? I mean, we all do it. So I think this is what Jesus is doing, is he's drawing that young man's attention to what is it that's keeping you from God? Why did you come to me and say, what must I do? You know what you must do. And I've told you what you must do, and you go away sad. It's keeping you from walking with him. So then Jesus looks at him, and Jesus is, is sad at this young man. So the young man becomes sad, and that saddens Christ. He doesn't want this guy to walk away angry. He doesn't want him to walk away and say, ah, I can't do that. He wanted him to actually come and follow him. That was the call. Please come and follow me. But the burden was too big. He couldn't get past it. So Jesus looks at him, and he's, he's sad, and he says, how difficult it is. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is a, a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And if you're going to take your camel through this, you have to unlade your camel. You have to take all the things off of it, and the camel crouches down, and then it can go through the eye of the needle, and then you can come in and you can bring your stuff in. And the, the many preachers will point to that and say, that's what this is about. The problem is that it was built in around 700. <laughs> what Jesus is actually talking about here is a physical impossibility. You can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. It ain't going to happen. So what he's telling us here is it's easier for that to happen than for a rich person, a person who has all of these things in their life. A person who has received all the, the credit that they're due. 
a person who has been recognized for all their greatness, for all their wonderfulness, been lauded for all the great things they've done. It's harder for that person to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. That's how hard it is because they have so much going for them, they're not willing to set those things aside. They won't let go of them. And, and it, it, it is intended to be an absurdity. It is intended to be that big of a, a, a disconnect. It's that hard. A person can't do it. Has it, have anybody has ever put a camel through the eye of a needle? And I don't mean the cigarette. <laughs> I mean the, the actual physical camel. It, it doesn't happen. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. So those who are around him, they, they, they're observing this. And remember, their opinion of this ruler is he's a ruler and he's rich and he's a moral, upright person. He has never missed a day of synagogue. He keeps all these rules. We know him to be the kind of person you want in court on your side. They look at him and Jesus says, it's almost, it's almost, almost impossible for this man to be saved. And they're like, what? Then who can be saved? If this guy ain't going to make it, if this moral, upright person isn't going to make it, who can be saved? Jesus, you've asked the impossible for him to sell everything. That's, that's just not, it's impossible. And so Jesus says to them, what's impossible with man is possible with God. God can squeeze that camel through the eye of a needle. As a matter of fact, he's done it many times. He has put many camels through many eyes of many needles. He can do it. But what, what the point here is, salvation is a miracle. To come to trust Jesus with everything is a miracle. We had some folks over for dinner last night. We were talking about apologetics and, and different ways to approach apologetics. And how do you just clear the air for a minute and say, faith in God is actually a, a rational, a reasonable response. It's a reasonable thing to do. And when you do that, when you help people clear these things out, you understand that didn't save them. You can't argue them into it. It is not an emotional manipulation. It is not a set of rational excuses. That just clears the air. When it comes down to it, what you have to say to the person is, trust in the Lord and you will be saved. And what happens at that moment is a miracle. A spiritually dead, unbelieving person comes alive and says, yes, I'll do that. That sounds like a good idea. Why didn't I do that before? That's a miracle. What is impossible for man is possible with God. God can bring spiritually dead people to life so that they will hear and respond to the gospel. Folks, that ought to engage you in evangelism like you wouldn't believe. Because <laughs> what it tells you is it isn't up to me. I don't have to have exactly the right illustration at exactly the right moment. I have to be faithful with what I've given. I have to be honest and earnest. I have to care about the person in front of me and then pray like mad. God, open their eyes, open their hearts, draw them into the kingdom. Fit that camel through that needle because I can't do it. And that's, that's tremendously good news. So they, the message here is with, with people, it's impossible. You can't do this. You won't let go of your natural things. Those, those natural gifts that you have that you take pride in, given to yourself, you won't let go. That camel ain't going anywhere. But God can remove that camel. So they ask, who, who then can be saved? Jesus tells them, it's impossible for you to do it on your own. And Peter says, well, time out. We left everything. 
We left our homes and we followed you. Where are we? Are we okay? It's the question of, well, wait a minute, Jesus. We thought that we were heading to Jerusalem and you were going to set up your kingdom and then we get everything back. So yeah, I left my, my house, but I'm expecting you know, a place in the kingdom here. And Jesus, he tells them, you're thinking too small. You're, you're expecting too few things. So he says to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You gave up a house and you followed me. Do you know what you've received, Peter? You've received so much more than a house. You have received the church, the family of God, as he calls his people to himself. In this age, you will get to be with the people that I am working in, the people I am equipping, the people I am calling, the people I am loving. That's what you've gained, Peter. You didn't lose a house. You gained the church. And in the age to come, you gain eternal life. He told the rich ruler, Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. What you have now is susceptible. What you have now can be taken from you. And if we didn't learn that lesson in 2008 when we watched all our houses prices crash and our 401ks disappear, if you're relying on your natural abilities, those can fade. You could have a stroke and not be able to do that anymore. If you're a great golfer, you could have a stroke, lose the, the control of your left side, and, and, and chip off into the weeds every single time, like me. And I've never had a stroke. Those things that you're counting on in this life, remember, they're transient. They're going to fade. They're going to go away. Your 401k is going to fail. Your car is going to break down, turn to rust, and be gone. Your natural abilities fade as you get older. Delight in them while you have them, but don't put your hope in that. Put your treasure in heaven where moths don't eat, where rust doesn't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, where 401ks don't diminish, where stock markets don't crash. That's the message here is, is Peter, you have not lost a thing in following me. You have gained what can't be lost. You have been given what will never fade away from you. Peter, you have gained so much in trusting me. You have gained eternal life in the age to come. So that's that picture that connects back with those children coming to Jesus. And they just love him. They just want to crawl in his lap. He's a nice man. He plays with them. He talks with them. He, he delights in them. He says, this is the kind of people that get the kingdom of God, the people who approach me that way. So if Jesus tells you, set down for a minute your fame and crawl up here with me. If Jesus says, put aside that bank account and come up and sit next to me. If he says, leave your good looks sitting in the dirt and come and sit next to me. What do you lose by doing that? You don't lose anything. You lose things that were going to fade anyway. But you come and you sit next to the master. And you gain everything in this life. And in the age to come, eternal life. So this morning, 
when you've done your diagnosis, when you have sat and thought about these things that are keeping you, these things that you, you just, if that person gets it, I'm going to be so mad. When you've diagnosed that, the next thing to do is to think about this promise Jesus has just made you. He's not saying, God is not the cosmic spoil sport who comes and says, if you're enjoying that, you better put that away. He is the cosmic joy giver. And he says, look, you think that's good? That's a nice thing. I'm offering you so much more. And if I ask you to put that away so I can fill your hands with these other great things, will you do that? Will you come and, and join me in these things? He, he's, he's like a parent looking at a kid who's holding the, the, the paper bag that the gift was in. And the parent's going, set the bag down and you can have this. And the kid goes, no, I'm not going to put this paper bag down because it's mine. But I got you this. Would you let go and take this? That, that's what he's doing. That's what he means by these children inheriting the, people, the kingdom of God. This is how you inherited it. Is you, you look to the promise and he says, look, I am promising you so much more. That's what you need to trust in. So see if that doesn't help pry your fingers off that thing in your life that's preventing you from taking that next step of discipleship. Is to look and say, but God is offering me so much more. It's so huge. And in the age to come, wow, I get eternal life with him. I get to be with him forever. That, it, that joy that that child felt crawling up into Jesus' lap, I get that joy for the rest of eternity. Can I let this thing go? That's that idea of displacing that joy with a greater one. We're meant to be filled. We're meant to have joy. So Jesus isn't saying put away everything you enjoy and just be empty. We're not built that way. What he's saying is put away these lesser things and fill yourself with the joy that will last for eternity. And this is what it means to be that disciple. This is, this is what it means to be the better disciple, to be sure of the things that you've been taught, is to hear Jesus promise you this and go, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. The rich ruler couldn't do it. He couldn't let go. The, the reality, and this is, this is the hard part, is we are physical beings walking in a physical world, and we like physical stuff. I'm quite happy when my checkbook looks pretty full. Nothing wrong with that. Just don't put your hope and your trust in it. That's what the problem with the rich young ruler was. Is he, he was rich, and he thought, I can't let go of these things. If I do, I will be empty-handed. How will I eat tomorrow if I give everything I have to the poor? Who will take care of me? Who provide for me? I have to have these things because I have to have this measure of security. Will you let that go and inherit something that can never fade? You want real security? This is what real security looks like. Sell everything you have, have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's the, the mark of the real disciple. That's the disciple who will trust in that. What we'll see next week, then, is we'll get to a person who is blind and calls out to Jesus. He already has nothing. So when Jesus calls to him, he can come and, and get what he's been offered. That's why Jesus said it's really hard for a rich person to, become, to uh, come into the kingdom. It's really hard to let go of that stuff, even if it's not money. But watch next week when the, the blind man comes, and it'll be such an encouragement. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning, everybody here. Um, would you help us sometime this week to reflect on our own life, 
on our own desires, on the things that we love, the things that we treasure. Lord, would you put your finger on what that is, just like you did with the rich ruler? Put, that, put your finger on that in our lives and help us to see what it is and to offer it to you and say, we, we want more. As much as I want this, Lord, I want more. And Lord, I pray that your promise would take root in our hearts and we would believe. And Lord, next time that desire, next time that thought, that thing comes up, I pray that we'd respond again with that promise. That we will gain everything in this life and eternal life in the age to come. So Lord, make us people who are following you. Make us people who let go of transient things to grab onto eternal. Lord, give us the faith to do that. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to trust the promise and to walk after Christ? We ask in his name. Amen.